I'm getting the sense we might actually pull something off here, that it won't be utopian by any stretch, there'll be super challenges, but from what I'm seeing, it's on. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, episode 68. I'm Mark Spencer. Climactic is helping tell stories and give a platform to communities across Australia. But let's be real. Australia is vast and we are few. But our fear of missing out is very real, and we're always looking for more people to join us. But Climactic is not alone in this pursuit of community empowerment. In fact, before we began, there was a group doing amazing work under the name Rescope Radio. And now, with the brand new moniker, The Regen Narration. Anthony James, the host, has interviewed some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the regenerative movement in Australia and overseas. And we're thrilled to welcome him to the show today. Hello, Anthony. Welcome to Climactic, your humble climate community podcast. Hello, Mark. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for reaching out. Uh, it's a pleasure. Like, Anthony, ever since I found out about what you were doing, I'm kind of kicking myself a bit for, like, doing Climactic at all. Because in hindsight, <laughs> I, I just wanted this kind of show, your show, to exist. And I kind of like, because I couldn't find it, I kind of made this instead. Yeah, well, and it's evidence that, that you needed to, because if you couldn't find me, then other people can't find it either. So there's room for more. Yeah, I think there is. And I think I've really enjoyed now diving into your back catalog, really. But I especially love that the guests you get on are bigger names. Your ba- you know, your background, of course, is academia. and Some of it. Some of it. Some of it. <laughs> well, some real-world life in yeah, there as well. Yeah, well, that's right. There's a there's a, there's a bit of touring muso, a bit of <laughs> a bit of a bit of business undergraduates. Uh, supposed to go into the corporate world, but decided it actually wasn't um, making much sense in the context of the world, and uh, went back to international development. Actually, in, in my oh, masters wow. and, and and overseas, actually living at first, then did a masters and tested what I'd actually seen on the ground. Other way around to probably probably the traditional route, and then ended up. I think up your way makes teaching. more sense. <laughs> yeah, well, I think so too. I'm I'm certainly thankful for it. I'm t- I'm thankful for the test too, like taking it to the to the body of knowledge, but. But yeah, I was pretty happy I sort of just went and did it. And it's probably a message for a lot of us too in that way to just, in this time when we need to just go and get mm. involved, you don't have to go and do a master's to do what we need to do at this point in time. No, and, and no master's, like it's not like we've uh, been here before with this problem and fixed it before and therefore we know the mm. right answers. Good call. We kind of need everyone Indeed. throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what works. Hence the value, I reckon, of, of these podcasts, hey? <laughs> That's as, right. as well as a million other things of course but but as unconventional as your background was anthony it obviously worked out to be the right recipe because you've got not only the the background of the body of knowledge but also like that self-confidence to speak to some of these bigger names you know like this episode of your show which i'm really grateful to be able to share here today on our feed you're able to sit down and have a conversation with with damon gamo to whom a lot of people in the climate community in australia now is is kind of one of our our rock stars and and mm. someone who a lot of people myself included would be a little bit foot in mouthed to get to speak to 
but you <laughs> you take those opportunities and you wring the absolute most you can out of them and it's it's fantastic and it's so great to be a fly on the wall for that thank you but of course at the same time it's testament to them i mean damon's a case in point uh probably the last thing you'd feel when you actually speak to him is what you're describing and mm. and he'd be he'd you know he'd be probably bamboozled to think that he'd have that effect on anybody <laughs> so i think it's probably testament to the people who are doing the sort of work that damon is and and I, and like pretty much every other guest i've had certainly mm-hmm. is that they're completely unassuming and and human and just in it for the same reasons we all are. We, we know, we know that there's something pretty special that needs doing here, and and we're giving it a good crack. What was it you wanted to get out of this chat? And and can you tell us a little bit about this episode, Anthony? Where, where did it take place? I was lucky in a way because I'd had a chat with Damon just as the film was being finished in his home, actually in his home last year when we took the podcast around the country. So this one was a bit like, okay, whatever happens. But I was particularly curious because it was it was recorded after a screening. So it was in a Q&A after a screening of the film, a, the premiere of it in Perth, where I'm based. So I was really curious to see what would come back from the audience. So there's a little bit of me with a question or two, but mostly it was hearing back from people. And there were some really telling moments and, in general, a really informed and robust Q&A where almost by the end everybody was involved so yeah I guess that was a big point of curiosity and and I guess the value of it coming out of it so it was in the heart of Perth right in the fashion the new fashion district actually so the the guest also with Damon was a fashionista here who started a magazine called Circular Fashion Magazine that's right Mm. about conscious and sustainable fashion and and we sort of threw the moniker around of regenerative fashion what would that look like what if that was in the movie or in the sequel, what would that look like? So she was in there too, and it was this terrific dialogue, and the impressions of the audience were really amazing, I thought, particularly because almost nobody had thought of a positive vision like that before. And if you think of that, that's stunning, that our imagination is even curtailed to such a degree in the face of, you know, the genuinely bad news that we do face. Mm. But, but it's not the only news we face. So that was some of the powerful stuff that obviously came out first time around with Damon and and yeah this was a this was a terrific compliment being after the event as it were but but still really at the foot of the mountain in terms of getting people now more involved and more excited about the positive possibilities that are there for us to jump on board if we want to 2040 the inception of it and now the the release and its success has been so great to see but the trail of the film itself has also tracked quite well along with regeneration and there's good stuff we could be talking about and here's a way in which we can talk about it constructively and let's see if that gets things moving and gets other people involved you said a massive thing if we can talk about it constructively Mm. i mean right there setting that that condition base to actually be able to engage in a way that can get more of us involved that can bridge understanding no small task in itself but certainly (laughs) one of the empowering angles that we can take and do more with i'll just say to all of our listeners on climactic if you haven't yet heard regeneration please do check it out it's an absolute treat when it gets released every fortnight and it's something i really look forward to and it's nice to have something optimistic and constructive and positive to look forward to in the media space 
Yeah, good call. And ditto to you. I love what you're bringing to the table too with Climactic and, and all the people that are working with you on it and um, all hands on deck, as, as a recent guest put it. The value with Damon, I mean, we did have a parallel path in a way, which was really interesting. And I mentioned it in the podcast so people will hear about it. When we did meet up and we were both flush with this sense of possibility that actually we might pull something off here. The Some of the consequences are lock-in, but how we deal with them isn't. And of course, how severe those consequences are of, of our current trajectory aren't lock-in either. So, And this, what we saw from farmers to pastoralists to some of the technological innovation to communities reconnecting, I mean, it, it is really all on out there. It's just still a little marginal, uh, too marginal. So, mm. But it is on and there is a way for all of us to come into it wherever we light up. So th- there's a space for everyone and it's a, one big invitation, really. That's beautiful. And I'm sure you're as excited to hear this as I am. So let's roll this episode of The Regeneration. And thank you so much for your generosity in sharing it with us, Anthony. This is great. I'm so excited. Thanks for asking. Thanks, Mark. And listeners, you can find a link to this episode on The Regeneration feed and a link to the website in the show notes. You're with The Regeneration exploring how people are going about regenerating life on this planet by changing the systems and stories we live by. We're just not focusing on the right things. We put all our attention into a presidential tweet or some kind of bickering in our question time, whereas these people rolling up their sleeves and getting on with things out there. And I just feel that we really need to start telling a new narrative or a new story. That was Damon Gamow after the recent premiere of his visionary documentary film, 2040. You might remember our first conversation on this podcast last year as the film was being finished. This time we're joined by a wonderfully engaged cinema audience and special guest Julie Leslie, the impressive editor of Circular Style, a new magazine about sustainable, conscious, circular fashion. What resulted was a fascinating sense of how the film is landing with people, the questions raised, stories shared, and inspiration felt. And tellingly, when I asked the audience at the outset who had previously imagined the sort of positive vision for the future outlined in the film, only a couple of people raised their hands. The film's enormous value was writ large in that moment. 2040 and these conversations are envisioning new, more aspirational stories to live by and exploring the changes we can make together that just might bring them about. Coming together on a balmy April evening in Perth, here's Damon and Julie. For those of you who are new to Damon's work with this, uh, you might recognise him from that sugar film as well. And that became that sugar book, which became that sugar guide and that sugar movement, no less. And that's part of the intent behind this film too, but we'll get to that a bit later. Now, who has, who has thought of a future like this before tonight? Very few. That's really interesting. All right, let's talk. Welcome to Perth. It's good to see you here. Mm -hmm. Now, we first met last year when you were finishing the film for a podcast conversation. Mm -hmm. I remember the drawdown beer props, which some of you may have noticed, the quick eyes may have noticed in there. I remember many, many dog-eared books, testament to the research that we've gone to. But what I remember most, actually, is over our cup of tea afterwards, 
when I said through a lot of my conversations on the podcast, I'm getting the sense we might actually pull something off here, that it won't be utopian by any stretch, there'll be super challenges, but from what I'm seeing, it's on. And then you said you had the same experience that I've seen it in the film since that you've talked to that. Perhaps you can talk here to a bit of your experience, like that journey of making the movie and coming to that sort of feeling. Mm. What was it like? Uh, well, I certainly started off very apprehensive and, and there's a lot of parents, I think, feeling that, that sense of overwhelm, that, um, not quite knowing how to engage with this topic. And um, the more I learnt about how constant bombardment of negative stories and imagery affects our brain and how it does shut us off from problem solving and creative thinking. Um, I, I guess the more time I spent researching and seeing just how many people are doing amazing things out there. And there were four or five stories we couldn't fit in the film. There's a ton of them. The first edit was over three hours. Oh, yeah. but, um, which gave me great hope was that you know we're just not focusing on the right things. We, we put our, all our attention into a, a presidential tweet or some kind of bickering, you know, question time. Whereas these people rolling up their sleeves and getting on with things out there, and I, and I just feel that we really need to start telling a new narrative or a new story uh, in this particular topic because there are people doing great things. Let's laud them. Let's put a spotlight on them and inspire, especially the younger generation, to believe that we can do this. And, and I do think that now especially after that seaweed experience. That was the moment where it turned for me and I remember ringing my wife and saying, quite emotionally, but no, well, yeah, we can yeah. do it now. And we didn't put it in the film, but um, Brian did tell me on camera and, and Tim Flannery's talked about it subsequently that the, 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 the amount of ocean between Australia and California would need about 1% to 2% of that ocean, that area, would, if we grew seaweed in just that small amount, it would sequester all of our current emissions. Like That's how powerful the seaweed solution is. So... Um, we just got to get on with it. So it does make me think about what you alluded to there around that we're looking at the wrong stories or getting fixated on the on the tri- on the trivia almost. Even though it's not trivial because you're talking about the president of the United States. I mean, it's not trivial. It is the hard stuff to something. But there is a there is another story mm. to focus in on. How do we go about focusing in on and making that part of our daily life? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of the storytelling in this topic has been left to scientists, and that's not their remit. You know, they're very good at um, reduction and, and looking at a problem and solving it brilliantly, but the language they use, especially in this topic, is, you know, very hard to connect with. It's anthropogenic, it's negative emissions. They're quite amorphous words, so I do feel it's really important for any storyteller, artist, poet, filmmaker, musician... We need to reignite the public imagination again and, and, and try and get people to connect to this issue and understand that the metaphors we use, like I, I did at the start of the film there, saying this is our home, like it's not, well, it's not the environment, it's not separate from us, it's our environment. The language we use from this point on, if we're going to get, turn this around, is absolutely crucial. So. Mm, thanks. Julie, there was just one question emblazoned in my mind as I came here to meet you tonight, and, that, and particularly sitting here in this part of Perth now, the, the new part, the newest part, if regenerative fashion was in this film, or if it's in the sequel, 2040 the sequel, because there's more clearly. 2041. Yep. 2041. <laughs> um, what would we see? I think the fashion story actually flows through the narrative on each of those topics, yeah. and I think whatever has brought you here tonight as well, you'll be finding you know, a similar narrative going through each 
um, topic that you covered. So whether it be regenerative agriculture covers you know cotton production, which is a major part of the fashion industry and a big part of the problem. Whether it's you know our oceans and the microplastic pollution fa that we're facing from um, uh, the way that we care for our clothes, it, it just weaves throughout that whole story. But if we were to look at 2040 and what we're looking ahead to, we'd be seeing um, at least a third of closets containing secondhand clothes, which is fantastic. Um, probably another third covered by uh, sustainably sourced, ethically produced fashion that we know where it's come from, we can track its progress from seed to closet. Um, and then probably also a large portion of it made from uh, technical recycling, so polyesters and plastic-based fabrics and textiles that currently exist that can't be uh, currently recycled, we're going to develop the ability to reprocess those and have a large portion of our closets made from regenerated polyester. So we'll also have a big share economy, so that goes into the story of the share ride-sharing. Uh, I think the way of the future is also going to be the rental market, so renting clothes for short term rather than ownership, which is also going to be great for, uh, for our closets of the future. Access, not ownership, that recurrent theme. Yeah, yeah really interesting. There was a book that came out well, a year or two ago called The Empire of Things, A History of Consumption, and in it, I think he said, in the average Western household, there's, we've got about 200 items in, in an average wardrobe and use about a third of them. If anyone came across the War on Waste series, they covered the fact that in Australia we discard over 6,000 kilograms of textiles to landfill every 10 minutes in Australia. Yeah, so let's, pause, let's pause right there. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> Six tonnes. Six tonnes of textiles gets discarded to landfill every 10 minutes in Australia. In Australia. That's a very widely accepted uh, statistic. And we're wearing our clothes a lot less. We're producing twice the amount of clothes globally that we were doing 15 years ago. And we're wearing them on an average in Australia about seven times before they get discarded. So it's a big waste problem that's being created in the fashion industry. And it really needs a, you know, a groundswell shift um, you know, from the roots up. So, mm. yeah. I'm really interested in that too because then you've got the technological aspects of the way I think we can do things better. But the big bit under here is just what we choose. Yeah, it's an empowering narrative, really. Was there a hand up there? Yeah. Our first question from the audience didn't come up so well on the recording. It was to Julie, wondering what we can do about the waste she's talking about. First of all, I would suggest that only buy what you need. If you don't need something, don't buy it. That's the most uh, ethical and, and sustainable way of going forward. Uh, if you do need something, I'd certainly look at investing in something that's made uh, with quality. So that's made with longevity, it's made to last, it's going to save you money in the future. If you're buying a cheap $7 t-shirt um, that's not made to last, that's going to only last you a few wears, it's going to ruin itself in the washing machine, uh, on the first wash and it has to be discarded and you need to buy another $7 t-shirt, work out the cost of that over the life, where um, cost per wear, whereas if you'd invested in quality to start with, it would have lasted um, through more washes, you could have perhaps passed it on to people because it was still in good quality condition after you've finished your use with it. Um, so really look at the, the long-term use. Fast fashion is really made um, to be disposed of and that whole take make waste um, linear economy just isn't going to cut it in the future. We really do need a circular economy where we're not generating any waste. And our clothing doesn't need to generate waste. There's already in, in existence a lot of ways to 
recycle our clothing uh, if we take the time and invest in being able to do so. So all the projects are there, we just need to make sure that we're supporting them and that they get the, um, the funding that they need. Yes, please. Hi. You mentioned that there's uh, a lot of corporations with vested interests in pushing the stay-as-things-are type model rather than change. And you also mentioned how um, while we can make the decisions ourselves, you get this constant bombardment of where things are going to stay as they are or things are going to get worse. So when these powerful corporations who have the money to fund, as you say, um, groups and you know, uh, basically an avalanche of advertising mm. of various mm -hmm. overt and less overt ways. Mm. Um, how can we possibly, in our current system, where mm. a lot of politics is very money-driven, mm -hmm. stand against that? Mm -hmm. Do you have any solutions for that? Uh, look, it's a great, great question, and yes, it's uh, it's one of the greatest challenges we're going to face to get through this. Um, they've been telling a really good story, and they've got a lot of money to tell that story, and they've been excellent at doing it. And that's why I think it's important for us to start telling a story together to fight that. We have to do that. That's the only way that we get through. And I think we should be heartened by what's happened historically, that there has been moments in time where we've been faced with seemingly insurmountable challenges like this. If you look at the abolitionists trying to overcome slavery, everyone said that the economy couldn't survive without slaves. It was, they were laughed at on the street for questioning it. Yet 60 years later, they managed to turn around. The suffragettes trying to vote, get the vote for women as well were told, get off the streets. You know, no sensible woman wants to vote. The men have the right answers. And here we stand again. Look at young Greta Thunberg and all these kids around the world that are actually standing up for these vested interests and saying, no, this is our future. We want to do something about it. And I think it, what we need to do is support them, get behind them and nurture them and make sure that their voices are heard because they're the ones who are going to carry us through a better world. Damon, you talked to Kate Raworth on a Monopoly board. Yes. Did she tell you the story about Monopoly? Yeah, we, we had that in the film. I had to cut it out. Oh, I, I knew it would have yeah, been. Can you tell that story here? Well, the, yeah, the Monopoly was actually invented by a woman named Elizabeth McGee in 1901. And she invented the game with two sets of rules. And the reason she invented the game was to, to make sure we didn't get greedy and monopolise so that anyone that landed and on property, if you bought the property, another player got a little bit of money. And the game ended when the person with the least amount of money doubled their money. But Parker Brothers bought the game in 1925 and said, oh, we like this. We'll get rid of that sharing version of the rules. We'll just keep the Monopoly rules. Cut her out of history as well. And Monopoly is now the game that gets taught to kids. Speaking of the stories we, we tell, hey, like this yeah. stuff doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, and I also raised Kate Brayworth because there's this fundamental, fundamental aspect that occurs and reoccurs to me with all the stories we're telling and even, you know, nominally the good stuff yeah. is what's it all for? Yeah. So that there was this strong thread through the film towards that, towards what the goal is aside from, yeah. I mean, you didn't hear one kid talk about money or GDP, no. <laughs> did you? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and nor do you hear adults talk about that either whenever you ask yeah. what's most important to you. So confusing the, the means for the ends a bit. So if we actually do institute a goal in the framework of donut economics, for example, it could change the Yeah, it's, it's, it's making visible what's invisible. Mm. At the moment, we measure our society purely on GDP, on finance. And actually, I was very fortunate enough, recently I spent 10 days in Bhutan, and I, I went to the Gross National Happiness Centre and spent time with their government and watched how that is implemented. And for those that don't know, 
the government set up something, the King actually set it up called Gross National Happiness, and every policy decision has to be put through a lens that includes um, community vitality, the effect on the environment, psychological well-being, health, education, all these nine pillars. And if the policy doesn't adhere to any of those, it gets ditched. So while we were there, the parliament was actually debating this mining policy at the time. And they knocked it back on the grounds of what they called intergenerational equity, because they said, our mining is now affecting future generations and stealing resources from them, so we need to actually cap the amount of mining. Like, an extraordinary actually see that functioning. But what it does is just simply instill the values that we care about beyond money and make sure that anything we're devising or building in our communities comes from that base of ethics. And you feel it when you're walking around. The buildings, the schools, the way everything is designed is manifested from this really holistic approach. And um, look, it was heartening to see that somebody's doing it and other countries are looking at implementing it. They sure are, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, over the ditch for a start yeah. recently. Right. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh, I saw a quick hand over there. Yeah. I'm Sam, I actually have a question for each of you. Yeah. So you mentioned at the start of your conversation that um, that scientists said that if you put in that microbe, the permaculture in the oceans in just 1-2%, yeah. mm. that you would be able to sequester all that carbon. Mm. So why is that not happening? <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, like, is, is there a reason why? Yeah, yeah. And then, um, Juliet, um, I recently donated a whole pile of clothes. I took it into Zara because I saw that they had like, a clothes recycling scheme. So I wondered if you had any knowledge, are they genuine or is that just something that they do to make you feel good but actually... <laughs> 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 good um, well, the first one is that um, I think the reason it's not happening is because people don't know about it yet with seaweed and so we've done a whole lot of screenings for actually impact investors with the film and Brian has raised an extraordinary amount of money already from people that want to build seaweed and he's in the Philippines now doing one, he did one in Bali and in fact, um, you can actually help us. We're launching the first one in Tasmania, on Bruni Island there, and Intrepid Foundation agreed to match fund uh, anyone that donates money to our particular platform. And uh, also, I just go on that the film actually is just a very small part of something large we're creating. So for people that are interested, we've got a website called What's Your 2040? And uh, you, if you go on there, you'll see a button that says Activate Your Plan, and you get asked a series of questions about the type of person you are, what your interests are, and what you particularly resonated with in the film, and then it spits you out your own action plan of six or seven things that you can do right now on your own or in your community or with your, with your family. From a whole, we've teamed up with about 50 different organisations around the world to take action, so seaweed is, is, is one of those. Uh, it's a really good question about the fast fashion companies that are currently offering recycling programs. Um, I only know of the H&M one, and there's a really good podcast interview with Claire Press on the Water Crisis um, podcast uh, with the sustainability uh, head at H&M and what they're doing with their recycling program. I do know that they've got a goal by the year 2025 to ensure that all of the textiles that are recycled with them are um, either recycled or downcycled. At the moment, I think they're only downcycling about 30% of what gets donated, and that tends to be the pure fibres. So they can do a lot with pure cotton or pure polyester, for example, but it's the blends that they're really struggling with. They don't have the technology yet to separate the fibres and um, sort of recycle them with any kind of uh, equal quality. So they are certainly putting plans in place, and I know that um, that is a goal of theirs for over the next 10 years. Um, but at the moment, yes, they are doing what they can with the fibres that they can either recycle or downcycle and stockpiling the rest so that as soon as we have the technology, they will have the fibres to use. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Ye
Um, I'll just add quickly too that there are companies that have just developed um, seaweed fibres as well. So I think Patagonia are experimenting with a new beta as well as made of seaweed. So Who's yeah, made shares in seaweed? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a hand down here somewhere. Was it yours? Yeah. Um, so I have a question for you, Damon yeah. and Julie. I've actually written it down. So give me a moment. Can you stand up so and give give the people at the back a chance to hear as well, please? So my question for you, Damon, is what do you think the biggest emotional anchor is for people who might be fearful of the change and stepping out of their routine and comfort zone to make a step in the right direction for a sustainable future? Because I think a lot of it is quite emotional based yeah. and attachment to our comfort zone. Yeah. So what would your advice be for people moving towards wanting to be more sustainable but a bit fearful of change? Mm-hmm. Right. And question for Julie, where are the best salvo stores in Paris? <laughs> 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 Thanks for that. Oh, yours is a lot easier than mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I would say that uh, I think we have an opportunity to reframe our current ecological predicament as, as an opportunity, as, as almost a gift that um, I often use the analogy of going to the doctor that you go and you get told, hey, there's something really wrong with you, but it's an opportunity to change your ways and get healthy. And I think the way that our societies are heading, uh, the instability there, but also ecologically what's happening, that there's a chance to actually fundamentally change the way we interact with each other at our community level and also the way we interact with the land and the soils and the oceans. So I often talk about that as, as, as this is a way of actually to, to create a much better world for our kids and for every living thing on the planet. Yeah. Thank you. Um, just on that as well, I think we've all got to be really aware of um, perfection paralysis. Yeah. We can't be perfect. We can't do it all. We can't um, just look at how many things that need to be done and get overwhelmed and then take no action whatsoever. So even little changes do make a big difference. One step, one change one you know one goal for yourself can really make all the difference um if shopping secondhand is something that you're happy to look into um, there's a wealth of secondhand stores across perth the op shops are fantastic that's where i do the majority of my shopping 99 percent of my wardrobe is secondhand clothes um so yes there's a comprehensive list of op shops and consignment stores in the circular style <laughs> magazine if anyone's interested it's a free magazine too by the way um the best ones i find are all over, truly. <laughs> um, you can be guaranteed of coming up with gold in the Mount Hawthorne and Scarborough areas. There's always clusters of great op shops together. Belmont, Cannington, Williton, Borogoon, Fremantle all have really great clusters of stores. And I also run a second-hand shopping tour of consignment stores in Perth called Shop Opportunity Knox. So if anyone would like to come on a consignment store tour, that's a little bit of fun and a great way to introduce you to second-hand shopping as well if you're not familiar with the process. Um, and also it offers you a little bit more higher quality curated items. So if you're interested in looking into that, just have a check on the socials. Um, you were talking about goals and yeah. there is actually a set of goals which fit perfectly within the donuts. Yeah. Congratulations, Damon, on really, I guess, narrating that story so well. And that's the UN uh, Sustainability Development Goals. The question for you, David, when are you going to be presenting to the UN? <laughs> <laughs> um, Good question. Well, we, we did in uh, November or December, and um, we're screening at their SDG Action Festival in May in Bonn, and they're using it at the next Climate COP in New York in September. And yeah, they've been very supportive. So they they want to use our education program and, and share it with the world. So yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Uh, my name's Robert. Thank you very much for that film. That was a real revelation. And thank you also for coming here because um, I think you make us more conscious of the fact that we're in an economy that's driven by resources mm -hmm. and particularly energy resources. Mm -hmm. And even today, uh, the business, local business magazine was uh, trumpeting the fact that $200 million was predicted to be spent in the next five to six years just on LNG extraction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> it is so daunting. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a government that's driven by the oil companies and told mm -hmm. what they can and cannot do mm -hmm. in terms of um, uh, you know, environmental laws, etc. Mm -hmm. um, we've got so much work to do. Yeah. How do we overcome the sense of being completely daunted mm -hmm. by, the, by the problem? Yeah. Well, that's why I made the film, I think, is that we've got to shift our focus. And all we can do is what we can do and our little bit and soldier on. But in the same sense, we also are in a moment where it's not enough, I don't think, just to do our own individual actions. We've got to find ways of really finding our agency and whatever that might be. So for me, it's making films. That's what I did. Um, whatever you do at your work or school or community, we actually need everyone to step up that extra notch. And... Even on our website, we've got opportunities where people can meet together, learn what actions to take, how to approach their council, what the steps they can take, because that's the training we need to give people right now. So many people want to get involved, they just don't know how to, but this is the time that we have to actually come together. It's not enough just to do it in silos. Um, and that's the challenge, because we're not good at talking face-to-face -face at the moment. But again, it's the opportunity. David, that, that segues to, to a big part of what you were alluding to a bit before around what happens next. Um, but there's more than what you alluded to before, right, around the, the, the website and those facilities and those organisations. There's a there's sort of a full outreach program and agenda you've got brewing here. So can you give us a sense of that? I like that you used the word agenda. Put an agenda brewing. It is an agenda. I guess it is, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's just there are there are so many organisations that have surprised us that really want to get involved in some way. So we're, we're trying to turn this into a bit of a, a platform, a solution, like a new sort of media outlet, I suppose, and, and keep these stories alive, create a place where people can come together and share ideas and vision too. Like we're offering other people's visions as well. This is mine for my daughter, but other people's might be completely different. I really wanted the film to kickstart a discussion on this. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're going to march into someone else's future because it's currently being constructed. You know, we have to remind ourselves that we're capable of, of changing that future. Um, and I guess the most exciting element of that is again at the education level for kids is that we have um, we've worked with a group called Call Australia and we've got a free curriculum for teachers from grade five to ten. Uh, it's thirty-one lesson plans that teachers can download straight away. And Madman very thoughtfully gave away 5,000 free tickets to teachers in the last two weeks of this film. And uh, a lot of them have already booked huge sessions for their schools to come and see the film or asked to show the film at the school. So, um, so far the best screening I've had of this film. Uh, we opened it at the Berlin Film Festival. And the second screening there was for about 612 to 18 year olds. And at the end of the film they all stood up and cheer and clapped for about five minutes like a rock concert. And I thought, this is, this is great. So I, I really want to empower them and give them the film and say, you go, you take it, show your teachers, show your mum and dad, this is for you, this is the future you want, so go for it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. There's a hand up there, I promise. Yes.
Yep. lovely to say that because actually early on a couple of the edits of the film we, we shared some, I had so many people involved in this film, it was a little bit tough sometimes but there was a select sort of film avant-garde that watched the film and said why are you, we know this stuff, why are you, why are you putting that in there that's a trope, we all get that and I said you get it but that's the problem, is that your tiny slice understand that but we actually need to make this accessible, we need kids to watch it we need families to all come together and see the film and um, we were thrilled today to, to find out that a hundred cinemas across Australia agreed to release the film on the 23rd of May, including Hoyts and event cinemas, all the big commercial ones. So our little film was going to be up there against the Avengers and the Pokemon movie. <laughs> but go, you little thing, and tell your friends and take their kids. Yeah. We, with the Sugar Film, we had three parliamentary screenings set up and not one politician came to any of them and didn't even send an intern or anyone. So, um, whereas in the UK we had really successful screenings, they implemented sugar taxes and the same in New Zealand we had one, but our own government just didn't want to have anything to do with it. So, you know, I don't think, well, most people are aware, but our government is just so heavily controlled and corporatised in so many ways, especially in the sugar industry, but also in fossil fuels as well. So, um, yeah, it's going to be up to us to shout extra loud on this one. There were hands flashing down here. Yeah, thank you. David, uh, it's a fantastic film. I mm. really enjoyed it. Um, it just seems to me that, like, a lot of what you're saying is most of the carbon can be sequestered through mm. the seaweed thing, mm -hmm. but is it profitable? That's mm. the first question. Mm. And if it's profitable, why don't you just corporatise it instead of asking for donations? Mm. And then the, the second question is, like, I know you're doing this community thing, but it seems to me that most of the pollution is coming from like developing countries, mm -hmm. you know, like China, India. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and so would it be more important to, you know, help them, right? And and the third mm -hmm. thing is, <laughs> and, and the third thing is like um, with farming, mm -hmm. that's producing more uh, pollution than. Mm -hmm. You know, carbon emission. I mean, fossil fuels, as you know, what you said. <coughs> is there a reason why they don't change the farming practices? Mm -hmm. Is it not profitable? Mm. Is it lower yielding? I mean, why don't people just do this? 
I mean, why, why are we doing this community stuff? Why don't we just, you know, pioneer the farming and then mm. teach the Chinese, teach the Indians, mm. you know? Yeah. I just, I just, You've asked me a lot of things there. Um, <laughs> I just want to why. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I, why don't we do, deal with the big things? Uh, well, the first thing I'll say is that um, 60% of our emissions come from the wealthiest 7% of the population. Right. So it isn't India and those developing countries that are causing the problem. They're dealing with our excess. China and America by far have the largest emissions. America per capita is astronomical. So we need to curb our ways, first and foremost. There's no doubt about that. Yes, they are growing, uh, but India has an incredible policy around renewable energy and what they're doing at the moment is quite remarkable. The farming one is a really tricky one because there's an old paradigm there that says more chemicals put on the soil, that's how you go. It's the green revolution that happened. Is it less profitable? Well, the problem now is that the soils are degraded. So the UN says we have 60 harvests left. That's how bad our soils are. It's a crisis. So these farmers are starting to realise, even the ones that don't believe in climate change, understand that the, the health of their soil is the most important thing. So they're starting to pull the carbon out of the atmosphere, put it in the soil purely for that. So that's a great thing. The problem is that it's a transition of two or three years to switch to these practices. And that's, at the current situation, a, a transition they can't afford because they lose their yields. So that's why these initiatives are being set up. If we had common sense government, they would penalise the polluters and use that money to pay the farmers to put it back in the soils. But we're not, we don't have a common sense. And I think the reason I emphasise communities is because I think a lot of people want more community. I think we've had a top-down structure. We've had a mechanistic way of viewing the world for a long time. And I don't think it's serving us. In fact, it's destroying the planet and it's destabilising our communities. And people don't want that. I mean, the, the rebellion against Trump and why they voted for Trump is the destabilisation of society. Everything's gone global. Power has been beyond us and we want to localise we want to have more direct influence on where we live and have a say in that and I think this again presents us an opportunity to do that like the microgrids in Bangladesh I saw those people how happy they were because the profits were staying in the economy they weren't going to an energy company elsewhere and then there were all cascading benefits as a result of that so um, I do respect your point but that's why I emphasise that in the film because I think we all evolved that way close to one another, close to nature, close to the people around us and a lot of us want that and we're craving that again And what about the seaweed? Why is it not made into a business? And well it is, it, yeah it is like it's, it's so new, but like I said the, the, a lot of impact investors approach Brian already and he's, they are, there's a lot of money to be made in it but again, I don't think it's a success story if two companies own the entire seaweed of the world. We have a Google of seaweed. Like, what's that going to do? You know, and that's, that's, I think, the world we don't want to create. You know? And that's the important discussions we need to have. But uh, thanks for your question. It might also be worth adding that the... What are we going to say? I think the, the move into the community is, is totally essential. In, that's right. In just about everything we do, because it's the systems. That's right. That don't want to be broken yeah. because they're just so well established mm -hmm. that they don't know how to re-educate themselves. Right. And, and only community can do that because there's the flexibility there. Exactly. We just have to start having permaculture gardens That's right. and things like that. Amongst our cities. And all the little things that we can do. Mm -hmm. And then yep. it starts to happen. It's like well that said. was the beautiful thing about the movie mm -hmm. was it's all accessible now. That's right. Yeah. And we just have to do it. <laughs> It's, it's well said, and it, I guess it's accentuated by the point I was about to make. That, I mean, some of the farmers and pastoralists in WA 
that we've been in our respective projects speaking with do say now that their returns are much better, much more resilient. Like they'll go over the dry seasons and the droughts, and mm-hmm. you know, including the ones that have been hammering the east in the last 12 months. I saw farms that were withstanding that. Mm. You know, remarkable mm. with some of the devastation you've seen. Yeah. But notwithstanding that, they are in the minority. So Charles Massey, who you talked about, he's, he says there's six of them out of maybe a thousand in the district that are doing what they're doing, even though you can see the difference over the fence. So it comes back to a bit of your point there about the other layers that hold us back mm. and, and that being how can we admit that we were wrong? Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Fundamental stuff we all share, I think. And I, so I raise that as a generic point, not just, geez, could the farmers get over themselves? But also what's encouraging <laughs> too is that on a larger scale, like companies like General Mills have just pledged to switch to regenerative farming on a million acres. You know, and Patagonia by 2022 mm. has said all their clothes are going to come from regenerative organic um, farm practices. So there are, it is happening at a larger level as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And, and hopefully they're making it safer for others to yeah. come on and not feel so uh, exposed, I suppose. All right, one more. I'm Lawson, and I'm just about old enough to be starting to do that. Oh my God, do these people not know anything? Are they so young? But one of the things I'm finding is a lot of my younger colleagues and friends are buying in convenience mm. or getting rid of stuff because they don't know how to do it themselves. Mm. And I've got some of those skills and I really want to hand them on um, on all sorts of levels. And mm. it, the community stuff, that mm. really struck a chord because you've got to get those skills back. That's right. We've outsourced everything. Yep. I mean, I've got a young friend who was going to throw out a whole load of shirts because the buttons had come off. <laughs> and he was delighted when I brought in a needle and thread and I showed him how to sew them off. I was going to do them for him. <laughs> should have put you in the film. You should have been one of the stories. <laughs> how to die. Yeah, okay. Some of us are taught how to speak. Probably my favourite quote from the film was Paul Hawkins. 
that out of all these ways and all these things that are happening, choose your bit, choose what lights you up and just and just get stuck in with all but the skills we can bring to this. Uh, we'll have a lot more on this stuff live in person as well as the production stuff um, through the Regeneration podcast. So stay tuned to that. We'll, we'll have a, a colleague of Kate Rayworth's out later this year as well. Um, there will be book signings in the foyer as well. 2040 The Book, uh, because a film wasn't enough. Uh, he had time on his hands, clearly. Uh, it is a beautiful production, so yep, you can speak to David and get book signings out there if you want. But for now, thanks very much for coming and making such a terrific conversation. Please give a warm hand to Damon and Julie. That was award-winning filmmaker and author Damon Gamow and editor of Circular Style magazine Julie Leslie at the premiere of 2040. The film is now screening right around Australia. For more on how to see it or even screening it yourself, how to get hold of the book and how to get more involved, see the links in our program details. The Regeneration is a fortnightly podcast made ad-free and freely available for listening and resyndication thanks to the generous support of our community of listeners and partners. Your support makes the hours of labour that go into each episode possible. So please help keep the regeneration on the air by donating or becoming a podcast partner via our website, regeneration.com. You'll find that in the episode details too. And please do subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps others find us. I'll leave you with the suitably sweeping sounds of Future, composed by Bryony Marks of the 2040 soundtrack. My name's Anthony James. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.